I've been coaching soccer, uh, one of my boys' soccer teams for the last couple years. And um, one of the things you, you notice when you're coaching six, seven, and eight-year-olds is that sometimes there's a lack of urgency on the field to get to the ball. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And you spend a lot of your time, time trying to instill a sense of urgency. And you hear from the sidelines, from parents and coaches, go get it, get it, go for it, what are you doing? <laughs> and the reality is, it's really hard to teach. It's really hard to teach, uh, a, instill a sense of urgency if somebody doesn't already have it, right? How do you teach someone to care more? How do you teach someone to be more aggressive? How do you teach someone to not be distracted uh, by the airplanes? by the other kids, by yesterday we had a train kind of cutting across the field on a track, by the birds. I mean, I'm distracted by the birds. <laughs> well, the reality is, this is true of all of us in life, especially in our world today, in the kind of world we live in. We struggle to have a sense of urgency about matters of importance. We, we are distracted by technology and other things. We are distracted and busy checking scores on our sp favorite sports teams. We have news stories breaking all day long from all over the world. We hear every tragedy, every major event that happens across the world and we hear it and we're supposed to respond in some way and we just get numb to it. When everything is presented as urgent, we end up feeling that nothing is really urgent because there's gonna be something else in five seconds and we just don't know how to handle it. And this affects us when we come before God and his word. We tend to find it really hard to grasp the urgency and the weight of God's kingdom and God's purposes of God's gospel going forward. We find it hard to live all of our lives ar like arrested by this, right? captivated by this, passionately, aggressively, diligently for the sake of the gospel. And there are passages we come across in scripture, like the one before us today, that is meant to wake us up, is meant to help us realize that we are perhaps further down the road to the world of the movie Wally than we would like to think of being numb, desensitized, to the world, to what really matters. Now, we can't change completely the world we live in, and we shouldn't necessarily try to completely remove ourselves from the world in order to alleviate this and make it easier. But we can allow God's word to bring us back again and again to, a, to see the world and to see our place in the world rightly and to live with a sense of urgency and weightiness to what really matters. So that's what we're going to endeavor to do today. In 1 Corinthians 9, we'll start at verse 19, and we'll work our way through the end of this chapter. Let me read the first few verses here. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, 
though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul begins by talking about freedom. He says, I'm free from all. We love to talk about freedom today. We love to think of ourselves, assert ourselves as free and independent individuals. We don't like authority outside of ourselves. We don't like responsibilities and commitments that we haven't willingly committed to that come on us from outside or that we can't easily get out of. We like to be free to make spur-of-the-moment decisions and just go with the flow and whatever feels right in the moment. Even in the church, we talk, about, talk like this and we think like this and we just clothe it in Christian language, right? Well, doesn't the Bible talk a lot about freedom? And it does. When you come to Christ, there is much freedom that becomes yours. You are free from being bound to any earthly authority as ultimate. You serve Christ. You are free from condemnation and shame and guilt because of the cross. You are free from trying to work and, and be good enough because God has saved you in Christ. You are free from the fear of the unknown and of difficulties in your life because God is good and he's in control. So there is great freedom in coming to Christ. But at the same time, the Bible talks a lot about willingly giving ourselves, binding ourselves to others. We talked about this a couple weeks ago and about what this looks like in the church and our need to, to be willing to give up our rights and freedoms for one another in the church. Uh, today, the context is a little different. It's, is different. It's about living as servants of those outside the church, outside Christ, so that the gospel might gain a hearing among them. And so, here a couple of those statements again. Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Towards the end, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So before talking about what this looks like in practice, don't miss the motivation here. Why is Paul willing to do this? And he's very clear, for the sake of the gospel. What Paul is talking about is a willingness to adjust his way of life so as to remove any unnecessary hindrances to the gospel going out and being heard and saving more and more people. Right? God is at work. God is in the business of saving people, reconciling rebellious and condemned sinners, which all of us once were, and which many still are to himself. God is on a mission. He is at work, and he does this as the gospel, the good news of Jesus died and risen for us, goes out, and people hear it and cling to it by faith. And it is ultimately, the God, who, ultimately God who does this, right? 
Even though this language here, Paul talks about saving people, um, you can go back a couple chapters and know clearly that he doesn't think he can save people. We, we cannot save people. We don't have that power in us. We can't credit ourselves when somebody comes to faith through, in part, our influence and words. But we can, and we are called to be heralds, proclaimers, communicators of the gospel, to be the means and instrument that God uses to draw others to himself. And the example that Paul sets here of doing that is a willingness to adjust his life, to be all things to all people, being ad- willing to adapt our lives in order to live in service to others where they're at, that they might better hear and respond to the gospel. So before we consider what this looks like for us, just consider what this looked like for Paul as it's a good example. Um, for Paul, this mainly had to do with a willingness to adapt between Jewish and Gentile contexts, between those who were used to living under the Old Testament Mosaic laws and those who weren't. So he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. So even though Paul was a Jew, he had become convinced through Jesus that abiding by all of the Jewish religious observances and practices like circumcision and food laws and special holidays was not essential to salvation. And yet, he is willing to still observe some of these things in certain contexts. He even went so far as to have his companion Timothy circumcised, which is quite a step for a grown man, not because circumcision is still a sign of belonging to God's people, but because it may have presented an unnecessary hindrance to proclaiming the gospel to Jews. He wanted to do, he wanted to remove such things as long as they didn't contradict the gospel. On the other hand, he said, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. So for the Gentiles, for the non-Jews, they had a very different religious background than the Jews. They were never under the Mosaic law. And so this took a different approach. So later on here in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say that if someone invites you to their home and they put some meat before you and you suspect that maybe this meat was sacrificed to idols at the temple, you should go ahead and eat it without raising the issue, which you probably wouldn't do around Jews. But in that context, for if it was a Gentile, it would have, could have presented an obstacle to them welcoming you, welcoming you in their home and for you being able to communicate the gospel to them. Now, it might be argued that Paul is just being wishy-washy here and just trying to be a people pleaser, right? Well, Paul, you just, you just kind of change, change your method wherever you're at. Um, and that's perhaps what the Corinthians had, had thought and why Paul is saying this. But this is not about being a people pleaser. This is about a willingness to disrupt your preferred way of living, to get into situations and conversations and relationships that are uncomfortable, that require adjustment in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. This is about recognizing areas of our lives that we have, that are comfortable and easy for us, 
that are just the way we've always done things, perhaps, but that are not essential to obedience or not matters of sin, and being willing to adapt and change them as needed for the sake of the gospel. So what does this look like today? If the gospel still carries with it a sense of urgency and weightiness, which it does, if God is still at work saving people through the proclamation of his word, how might we conform our living, our behavior, our practices and habits in order to remove unnecessary obstacles and gain a hearing for the gospel? Quite simply, you know, at a very basic level, we need to be willing to go out of our way to engage those outside of Christ. Right? Who do you spend all of your time with? Who do you invite over to your house? Who do you cultivate friendships with? Who do you engage in recreation with? Is it only believers? Thankfully, I, I hope it is the case for you. You have that. We need that. As Marlene said, it is a great joy to come together on Sundays and be reminded that we have one another. And hopefully it's not only Sundays that you're reminded of that. That is a great thing. But are there those outside of the church, those outside of Christ in your life who know that you are there, who know that you care and love them? It means being willing to be present in those spaces where non-believers are, in whether that's schools or sports or communities, neighborhoods, even in, perhaps especially in places that make you uncomfortable, as far as, as long as they do not lead you into sin. And as you are in these situations and relationships, be willing to do the hard work to connect with people on their level to care about the things they care about, to engage them and take interest in the things they are interested in. Not just to quickly get the message in. Uh, Paul has this great line in another one of his letters in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, though we were willing and ready to share that, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So who, are there people in your life that you are, who do not know Christ, but the, that you are sharing not only the gospel with or seeking to do that, but also sharing your lives with? Who are not just projects, right? But are people that you love and care to see come to know Christ. Relatedly, don't be surprised and turned off by the sin of those who don't claim Christ. When they perhaps use language that is not fitting for a Christian, don't withdraw from them. Don't expect them to act or speak like a Christian as a precondition of your love in hearing the gospel. When they bring up beliefs or behaviors that you know to be sinful, don't feel the need to always correct them. There's a place to call sin, sin, and we shouldn't be dishonest, but our job is not merely to conform people to Christian morals, but to see their hearts changed by the gospel.
And our motivation in doing this is not just the urgency and weight of the gospel, but also that this is how God has, this is what God has done to us. That God has gone out of his way and made himself uncomfortable for us in, in ways that we could never completely follow. Martin Luther puts this really well in, a, in his uh, great work, The Freedom of a Christian. Um, this is a little bit longer of a quote, but it's, it's worth reading. He says, Lo, my God, without merit on my part, of his pure and free mercy, has given to me an unworthy, condemned, and contemptible creature all the riches of justification and salvation in Christ, so that I am no longer in want of anything, except of faith to believe that this is so. For such a father then, who has overwhelmed me with these inestimable riches of his, why should I not freely, cheerfully, and with my whole heart, and from voluntary zeal, do all that I know will be pleasing to him and acceptable in his sight? I will, therefore, give myself as a sword of Christ to my neighbor, as Christ has given himself to me, and will do nothing in this life except what I see will be needful, advantageous, and wholesome for my neighbor, since by faith I abound in all good things in Christ. Thus, from faith flow forth love and joy in the Lord, and from, it, and, and from love a cheerful, willing, free spirit disposed to serve our neighbor voluntarily, without taking any account of gratitude or ingratitude, praise or blame, gain or loss. Its object is not to lay men under obligations, nor does it distinguish between friends and enemies or look to gratitude or ingratitude, but most freely and willingly spends itself and its goods, whether it loses them through ingratitude or gains goodwill. For thus did its father, distributing all things to all men abundantly and freely, making his son to rise upon the just and the unjust. Thus too the child, that is us, does and endures nothing except from the free joy with which it delights through Christ in God, the giver of such great gifts. So realizing what God has done for us in Christ and delighting ourselves and being satisfied in that, and from that place, giving ourselves in service to others. Now, we're talking about a sense of urgency and the weightiness of the gospel. Grasping the significance of what God is up to in the, in the world. And this, as we've seen, has implications for our giving ourselves in service to others, but we should not miss the implications that this has for our own life, of paying careful attention to our own lives and our own faith to make sure that we do not miss out on this as well. And that's where Paul goes in the next few verses, the last few verses of this chapter. So the focus, you'll notice, shifts here a bit. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the prize here is not, as it may seem, making converts, but yourself, making it safely and securely to eternal life. So we have this analogy of, of running a race, uh, approaching life like a runner in a race with a real shot to wit- take the one and only prize. In such a situation, you do not train, you do not run aimlessly with no purpose. You don't you let yourself get distracted by all the things that there are to get distracted by. You don't become numb and forget and lose sight of the goal. No, you wake up every day and you prepare to run with a purpose. Nobody wakes up one day and decides they want to run a marathon. I mean, you might, but it's not a good idea. You, you train over months and months, and if you're a world-class runner, you are putting in, everything in your life is put into service to that goal. What you eat, when you wake up, when you go to bed, how much water you're drinking, you're, you're, you're running, you're training, you're, you're stretching, all of your life is put in service of reaching that goal. You make sacrifices of other desires and other things that you would surely like to do in order to reach that goal. So should our life be lived before God in light of the weight and the urgency of the kingdom and glory of God. Now, of course, the prize of eternal life is not limited to one individual, as in the running analogy here, right? There is not only one winner. However, neither is the prize given to everyone, whether they persevered with purpose or lived aimlessly. In, in reality, there are no sort of Christians, or Christians in name only, or almost Christians. You are either in Christ or you are outside of Christ. And if you are in Christ, you bear the fruit of that over time. And part of that fruit is that you hear and respond to warning passages like this, and you take them with seriousness. Exercise self-control over all things. Run in a way to obtain the prize. Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, these are warnings for us to not take life lightly. To not be numb and distracted and desensitized. To be aware of the constant temptations, to lose focus, to let up our guard. Continuing the running analogy, there are many ways to get out of shape, spiritually. Um... In Jesus' parable of the sower, you might recall that there are some who hear the word of God and they're not turned away by things like unbelief. They're not turned away by th- because of persecution or just difficulties or any of that. That's not the issue. However, they are turned away without even realizing it because of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. They just slowly 
fade away, thinking that other things are more important. We can get distracted and ultimately disqualified by many good things as we get caught up in raising a family, in working, in making money, in building a business, in pursuing our hobbies and interests, and in following sports teams. I realize a warning like this might come across kind of strong. It seems like as good grace-focused Protestants, we tend to recoil at any strong warnings. And it's tempting to turn to grace as an excuse to kind of lessen them and ignore them. Well, nobody's perfect. God understands I'm not saved by my efforts anyways, all of which is true. But none of this excuses us from heeding the commands of God. Nowhere is God's grace and compassion presented as a reason to disregard his commands. In fact, much the opposite. God's grace truly experienced and beheld motivates us towards obedience, motivates us to take warnings seriously. And so if we hear warnings like this and shrug our shoulders and have no concern and disregard them as irrelevant, we should be concerned. We should be concerned if we are not pricked in the heart, if the Spirit does not convict us to hear and obey. If we hear, run that you may obtain the race, and we respond with, well, it doesn't really matter how I run because I'm saved by grace. That, that's not what Paul says. It does matter how we run. Not because how we run and how we live saves us, but it does show the fruit of our salvation. If we have heard and beheld the grace of God, we, we take such things seriously. Now, it is true that we need more than warnings. It is true that we need more than warnings as a motivation in this, although not less. But we also need to see the worth of God and his grace for us in Jesus. Beholding, heeding warnings has a place, but beholding the worth of God is equally, if not more important. If you think of a world-class marathon runner, the reason a world-class marathon runner gets up every day and makes extreme sacrifices, turns down many desires in order to train for a marathon is not because sim somebody simply said, well, you should probably do this. And it's not because somebody said, well, if you don't this, do this, here's what's gonna happen. That, that is not sufficient motivation. No, the reason he exercises great discipline, or she, and self-control is because his desire for the prize is so great and it's worth giving up other lesser desires in the meantime. The prize is that valuable. And he doesn't have to convince himself of that. He knows that it is. Likewise, if we are going to make ourselves servants of all, 
for the sake of the gospel, if we are going to run our own, the race of our own lives, not aimlessly, but with discipline and self-control, we must behold that Christ himself is valuable, is worth it. We must behold his goodness, his authority, his love and compassion, his right to judge all of creation, and his tender and welcoming heart. Jesus tells us the parable of a, a man who sells everything he has to, in order to gain a field where he's found this treasure in order to tell us that he is that treasure and he is worth selling and giving up everything we have in order to gain him. He wants us to see that he is worth it. This is part of why we meet together each week, is to remind ourselves of this, to behold him and who he is and what he's done for us. But at the same time, there's also the part of repenting, of becoming numb and desensitized to the urgency and weight of his presence and purposes and failing to run with purpose. So run that you may obtain the prize. Do not run aimlessly. Do not box as one beating the air. How much of our time and the things we give ourselves to could be explained as beating the air, thinking that we're doing something purposeful and just beating into the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So we have both these warnings and we have the worth of God to compel us to heed them, to live, to continually come back to Christ and to live all of our lives for him. And part of the way that God invites us to behold his glory and his grace is through communion, which we do every week. In doing communion, we are remembering that Christ served us, that Christ gave himself, his body and blood, to serve us in order to awaken us out of our sin, cleanse us from guilt, that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him. So if you belong to Christ, I invite you to, to celebrate this with us. Um, if you're not sure, we, one of the pastors would be happy to talk with you afterwards or during the week about that. But this is a time for us to behold the glory and grace of Christ in a tangible way and celebrate that together. Let's pray.